Please do take your seats and turn back to Hebrews chapter 10, where we're going to be spending our time today, page 1208, if you've got the church Bible. And if you're a fusion age boy or girl, you should have a worksheet. It's not detailed questions, but it's a way of helping you to kind of run along with it. And the, the first question is, what was the big theme or themes this morning? And I'm going to tell you that in just a minute. Now, earlier this year, my son and some friends ran the Brighton Marathon. Do you know that a marathon is 26 miles? Who would run that in their right mind? The story goes that the first runner, Phaedipides, ran from Marathon to Athens and died of exhaustion. I think that's just proof of something I've lived by for many years. Exercise is bad for you. But my son and his friends wanted to do it, so my family went to watch them run and offer their support. And by all accounts, the atmosphere was absolutely amazing. Everyone was out on the streets cheering, and it was helped by the fact it was a beautiful, sunny, bright day. Now, a marathon is quite an undertaking for an ordinary person. Training had been going on for months. Before the big day, there were some nerves. How's it going to go? What would it be like? Will I be able to finish? How, what would it be like to push through those last few miles? Because I've never actually run the full 26 miles before. And then the day came. And the spectators were out in force. And they were able to move from one part of the course to another part where there was a bend in the road and things in order to cheer them on. And uh, apparently that it's just a, a party fiesta kind of atmosphere. And everyone is all together. And it... The last few miles are absolutely grueling and people are kind of going along, you know. Give me a drink. All nearly fell over. <laughs> and I'm not even running. I just fell over on the stage. Some people look like they're so weary they just could lie down on the track and go to sleep. Just kill me here. But they kept going and they finished the race. And a huge part of the reason that they finished the course was the encouragement of others. The encouragement of the other runners, the runners, were, were, it seemed, weren't kind of um, putting each other down, but were saying, keep going, come on, you can do it. The encouragement of the crowd, of friends, of complete strangers, all of them united, all the voices joining together in a passionate urging towards the finish line. You can do it. Come on, keep going. When my wife got home, I wondered who was more exhausted, her or the people that had run the race, because she was such a passionate supporter. She was cheering for everyone. She actually hugged a young man she didn't even know before that day. And she'd done quite a lot of steps, walking. She was exhausted, sunburned. Now, many years ago, there was a group of ordinary people, just like us, in a church just like King's Church, Chesington. And they were so weary. They were facing problems and challenges. And they were finding that the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. And some of them felt like giving up. Some of them were looking at outside at the non-Christian lifestyle, maybe the lifestyle that they'd left behind or the lifestyle of some of their loved ones. And they were thinking, oh, that looks tempting. That looks easy. It looks like I'd have a lot more fun over there. Others were, were scared of the consequences if they continued following Jesus. It, it, could, it would have some personal consequences. It could be very painful. And so they were asking, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Perhaps that's you here today. 
Christian who's been in the race for a few years and you're now weary. Is it worth it? Or as an inquirer, a seeker, someone who's curious. And you're thinking, I want to understand this, but I'm really going to ask, is it worth it following Jesus? And so this letter is from a pastor who loves people and he's kind of sent them his best sermon. And he's writing to say, keep going. You can do it. Don't give up. In fact, to give up would be a dreadful mistake. Potentially the worst mistake of your life. But to keep going leads to glory and beauty that is unimaginably great. His main point throughout the letter is to impress on these people that Jesus is better. He's simply the best, better than all the other options. And now we come to chapter 10 and it's kind of one of the, it's like a peak of the mountain. And it is an incredibly rich chapter and I wish, honestly, that I had planned for much more time for us to look at it together. But here we are, live and learn, mostly live. I want to give you some idea of the main points, main thrust of this chapter so that it will help us keep going and keep growing. So I've just got two headings today. A completed work and a call to worship. Completed work and a call to worship. Firstly, a completed work. Verse 1 to 18. Now when you hear about work, I wonder what comes to mind. If you think about somebody starting work, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, what kind of picture uh, comes into your head? What does it look like for someone to be working? Now in the modern world, many people work by sitting down. That's why so many people were able to continue working, even during the pandemic, because they could just find a spare room or a cabin in the garden, and they could just continue their work, sitting at their job. Somebody joked that the only way to explain most modern jobs to an older generation would be to say, it's with computers. Now, of course, that's not all jobs. We've got some people here who do real jobs where they have to do physical work, some of them have incredible hands, they can pull out nettles with their bare hands. Some of this, is this true? Some of the guys here just pull out nettles. You say, pick that, could you pick that sleeper up? Let me pick it up. Oh, man alive, look at them. Muscles. But not for most of us. <laughs> most of the world, and in today, and in the ancient world where this letter was written, almost no one worked by sitting down at a desk. Almost no one. Most people labored in the fields or in energetic crafts like building or serving in a household where you're on your feet all day long. Only a few would sit down. Most people stood to work and sat to rest. You only sat down when you'd finished work. And that is the main point of the first 18 verses of this chapter. In our Bible, it says at the top there, uh, Christ's sacrifice once for all. What this section is emphasizing is that Jesus Christ has done his work, he's finished, and he sat down. His work is fully, finally completed. Verse 11, if you want to jump down to there, makes a comparison between the priests working in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant system, and Jesus. And it says here that day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. 
Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. See, the priests had to stand when they were doing their duties. Their duties involved getting the sacrifices and cutting them up and offering them and washing things and bringing blood and welcoming people and talking to them and on their feet all day long. Oh, it's hard work being a priest. You don't even get a tea break. There's no union for priests. You can't go on strike. Day after day, every priest stands performs his religious duties. And then verse 12 finishes the comparison. But when this priest, he's talking about Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, the place of power and authority. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Now, what we have to get our heads around, dear friends, is that this is actually the best news that you've ever heard in your life. The fact that Jesus is sitting down makes all the difference in the world to you and me. He has finished his work for us. He doesn't need to do any more. It's all done. You're completely in the clear. Let me give an illustration of a mechanic. You've got a problem with your car. You know, it's making a funny noise. It won't start. The wheel fell off. Whatever it is. So you call a mechanic and book the car in. And he says, yeah, I can get you a space. So you take the car in. The mechanic does whatever he does back in that workshop. Who knows? Waving a magic wand. And he fixes it. And the car comes back. It's fine. And you pay the bill. And you're all set. And then the next week, you have the same problem with the car. But the mechanic fixes it again. And he charges you again. And then, here's the thing. The next week, the car fails again. So you take the car again to the mechanic, and he fixes it again. And then you realize that you have to do this same thing every week for the rest of your life. At some point, you might conclude this mechanic hasn't solved the problem. And that's the problem with the Old Covenant system. Verse 1 says that the law, the Old Testament law, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. The law of Moses, which was the most majestic thing in all the world, the God's self-revelation given to human beings, the, most, the only true, perfectly true religious system of revelation from God that is, was given in the entire world, that law, even as great as it was, it was still just a shadow. And it's a shadow of something that's coming in the future. And he says the good things that are coming. So it's, a, it's like the future reality is coming. is so bright and it's so amazing that it casts a shadow backwards into history. What is coming is so amazing that the shadow could be like, good things are coming in the future. And the Old Testament law gives people a hint, a picture of what is coming, but they don't know what it is. So what they have in the Old Testament just isn't enough. And verse 1 continues uh, that the same sacrifices were repeated endlessly year after year, but they couldn't make perfect those who drew near to worship. And so, logically, verse 2 explains that if that system had worked, they wouldn't have needed to keep on offering sacrifices. If it had worked, you wouldn't need to take your car back every single week to the mechanic. 
The system isn't doing what we really need it to do. And I think there's a sense of burden here in this language. They were repeated endlessly year after year. That's wearying. But they couldn't make the worshipper perfect. How could they? Verse 3, all the sacrifices did for all those years was remind you that you were still a sinner. Verse 4, because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do the deep job of cleansing the heart. But there's a hint there. Somehow, some blood could do the job. And this is personal. I know it sounds remote, but it is personal for all of us because it touches an issue that we all have, which is our conscience. We all know we're not what we should be. We all know we fail even our own standards and the standards we lay on other people, let alone the standards of a perfect, holy God. And we can all think of things that actually we still feel bad about. Something you said, you wish you'd never said those words. Something you did, maybe something no one knows about. And because if we've not been cleansed, we feel guilty for our sins. Even people who are apparently quite hardened actually have a conscience. And often it's only right at the end that they, they finally try and make it right, but it's too late. There's a story in my extended family of somebody who basically took an old relative to the solicitors and had the will changed and made himself the executor of the will. And so when the old relative died, he then inherited a significant fortune and he was supposed to share it with the other relatives. But guess what? He kept it all. And only right on his deathbed, as he was dying, he muttered to someone in the family, please make it right with them. He'd known it for years. Too late. Guilt. Most people have something which hangs heavy on their hearts. Something they've done or said they wish they hadn't. Something which haunts them. Something maybe makes you afraid of being found out. How wonderful is it to know this, that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the sprinkled blood from it has the power to wash away every stain from your conscience. Bless you. How wonderful. It brings her out in sneezing. So this is what this means. We can come to God. You can come to God. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, you can come to God and look up at the sky and see that the sky is absolutely blue and between you and God there isn't even a single cloud. He looks on you and smiles. There's not a cloud in the sky. There's not a shadow falling across the relationship. God isn't looking at you and arms crossed and thinking, oh, I'm just not so sure about this one. We can come to God absolutely pure. Now, do you believe this? And if you say, yes, I do believe it, do you know it in your own experience? Is it real enough to your heart? friends? Or are you still carrying around your sense of guilt and working really hard out of result of that? It drives you. 
It'll exhaust you. Jesus has come and given us something better. Absolutely cleansed conscience. His work is finished. Look at verse 14. Now, one of these things that if it wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't say it. By one sacrifice, he, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He's made you perfect, Christian friend. You see what that means? Jesus Christ has come, and as a result, you are made perfect in God's sight. Not just slightly improved. Not just, you know, you version 2.0. This is absolutely perfect. And, And verse 15 goes on and says, the Holy Spirit testifies, speaks to us about this in the Old Testament. The Spirit himself comes and wants to knock on your door and says, hey, listen to this. Through a prophet Jeremiah, verse 16, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. That's a promise made by God, fulfilled in Jesus. We now live under that new covenant system, that new arrangement, which means God has given you a new heart, a renewed mind. We're not just talking about an MOT, a service, and a tweak. This is a brand new engine and it's ULES compliant. Verse 17, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. What? Can God forget the one who knows all things? Evidently, when it comes to you, Christian brother or sister, God has decided he's not going to remember your past. He looks at you and says, I know her but I can't remember a single thing she's done wrong. That's what it means. Verse 18 concludes, Where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sins is no longer necessary. Some people work their whole lives trying to sort of pay off a feeling of debt, needing to try and win the approval of other people, needing to kind of try and justify their existence needing to, to, to make up for, for their own deficiencies or something they've done or their lack. He sets you free from all that. So you don't need to make sacrifice anymore. It's not necessary. Jesus has wiped the slate clean. So what is Jesus doing now? He's no longer at work. He's finished his work. He doesn't need to die over and over again like the repeated sacrifices in the temple, nor is he again and again coming to present his own sacrifice before the Father, and so he needs to do that in the heavenly sanctuary. He's there at God's right hand, the place of power, and he does pray for you. He does intercede for you. We thought about that some time ago. He is there on our behalf, but he's no longer at work. His sacrifice was was done once for all, and it is finished. He's taken his seat. His work is over. And Hebrews wants you to take the greatest comfort in this. It means that Jesus has secured complete forgiveness of all our sins. He has established God's new covenant with you, God's treaty, his relationship with you. So when we as Christians look for assurance that we've been forgiven, we don't need to look at anything we do. Have I been good enough this week? I used to find that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, you know, we we do that once a month. I remember as a young Christian thinking, I don't know if I'm good enough to take it this month. It's completely wrong thinking. 
That's the point. You aren't good enough to take it. He's done it for you. It's possible to be in a church and be even brought up in a Christian home and go through all the wonderful youth works that we have here and still not get this. I didn't get it until I was a teenager. It's not what you have to do. It's what has been done for you. You just have to receive that. And receiving is the hardest thing. You don't need to look to anything that a church does or anything that a Christian minister or pastor or priest does. You don't need any of that. Great scholar and the former bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, says, we don't look back to those things. We look back to the event outside Jerusalem on that dark Friday afternoon and thank God for what was accomplished fully and finally on our behalf. So there's this passage, Hebrews 10, completely rules out any notion that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice and that the clergy can, doing the, the Lord's Supper or the elders leading the supper are in some way priests offering a sacrifice. It's not that. It is not that. That has all been done by Jesus and God has done it all. So, completed work. How do we respond to that? How should we respond? What's an appropriate response? The answer is point to a call to worship. A call to worship. The completed work leads to a call to worship. Verse 19 there. Uh, Therefore, brothers and sisters... By the way, I don't think that heading is, is so good. A call to persevere in faith. So if you've got one of the church Bibles, you could take a pen out and just strike through it right now. These are about 12 pounds each. And uh, call to worship and then just... Just tell Ben Archer that I said you could do that. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Now, verse 19 begins with the logical connection word. What's the first word in verse 19? Therefore, thank you. And whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you ask what it's there for. What he's doing here is saying, look, in light of everything I've just been saying, not, not just the beginning of chapter 10, but even going further back, I've been teaching about Jesus being the great priest for chapters. All of that, all of this teaching so far. Therefore, in light of all that, here's what we have to do now. Let us draw near to God. That's all we have to do. Draw near to God. You just have to come close. Now we see where it has all been going. Let's come to worship. Verses 19 to 21 summarize everything we've been learning so far. We can access God's presence boldly. We can come into his presence like that little boy sitting under the desk in the White House, in the, the Oval Office. He's my dad. He's everyone else's president, but he's my dad. We can come in through Jesus' blood. Jesus takes us on a new living path into the innermost place, the presence of God himself through his work. We've thought a few times during this series about the, the temple or the tabernacle, you know, and the great cur- the thick curtain that separated the most holy place where God was enthroned. And how you couldn't just go in there. Only one person went in there once a year the high priest. Now I just want you to imagine 
that you, you as you are, dressed with the clothes you have got on now, okay, without even doing your makeup or cleaning your teeth or, or shaving, that you are standing there and it's the Day of Atonement sometime in the year 900 BC. And somehow you've managed to get into the temple and you're standing next to the most the high priest, and he's got this, he's got like the net worth of the nation on his chest. The jewels on that were like the crown jewels of Israel. And he's got this amazing outfit. It's covered in gold. And he's got the blood ready to go in to the most holy place. And there you are, standing right next to him. And he looks at you and kind of says something in Hebrew along the lines of, what are you doing here? And you can say this, it's okay, I'm coming in with you. How can you come in? I'm coming with a better sacrifice. I'm coming with the blood of Jesus. I'm coming in there as a son or a daughter. That's my home. So the result of all this that this has been teaching us is to say, come in. You're most welcome. You belong here. You're home with your heavenly father. And the scholars tell us that this word drawing near in this context is almost a technical term for come to worship, come to worship. So it's not just kind of get near someone, hi, it's come to worship. Now, we might need to spend just a minute clarifying our thinking when we hear the word worship. He's, he doesn't want to think about it, he's going. <laughs> Wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word worship. Uh, for some people, you think about worshippers and you, you might, your, your mind instinctively goes to some sort of Religious building, like a, a temple, and people maybe wearing robes. Uh, I, was, I once visited a site in northern India where there's a, the most holy site, or one of the most holy places of the river Ganges. And um, the, this site, every few years, um, I think it's 10 million people make a pilgrimage to there. It's the only movement of human beings that can be seen from space. That many worshippers come to the Ganges. Millions of people all come and they, work, they come. And it's sort of this, I'm going to do something special. It's on a particular day. It's like, a, you know, it's a pilgrimage. There's a thing. And it's kind of, it's every so often, you know, Muslims go to Mecca if they can once in their life. That's one of the five pillars of Islam. Or you think of people wearing robes and bowing down or they've got a special rug or a special building. Or if you're in the kind of contemporary church scene, like, like many of us, you might think of worship as the singing. So that what we just did with the band was worship and everything else isn't. And we, we sometimes fall into that by saying things like, now it's time for the worship. It's actually quite a bad mistake for our thinking to do that. We think of the music leader as the worship leader. It's not true. The worship leader in the church is the Holy Spirit. Worship is not just music, and it's not just bowing down, and it's not just doing special things and being devoted. Worship in the Bible is serving. Serving. The word is really interesting. This The Bible word, usually translated worship, can also be translated serve. Same word. So Bible, the Bible talks about worship as serving. Whatever you are serving with your life right now, in the most profound way, 
You are worshipping it. So if you really serve your career, so your career will always come before your friends, or your career will come before your family, your kids. Kids will always be, be second um, tier behind your career. Or, or your, 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 actually your, your career is more important than your health. So because of your work, you will actually spoil your own health. There's a very good chance in, in the Bible, in Bible terms that you are worshipping your career. That is your real God. Same thing applies to all sorts of other things in our lives. Whatever is the big thing we are serving is the thing we are worshipping. So the Bible talks about worship as the whole of life. Apostle Paul in Romans writes this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Your body means all of you. Everything about you. Offer everything. He goes on, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So your mind is worshipping. Your life is worshipping. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. Hebrews is teaching the same principle. Come to worship. That means all of you comes in. What does it look like? Verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, a true heart. Remember that the prophet Jeremiah up above in verse 16 has said, I will put my laws in their hearts. Something happens to people when they are born again by the Spirit. They are changed inside. Something involving their heart, the center of who they are. They become truly human beings. I've seen it more times than I could count. And they change from the inside out, not overnight, over a lifetime. And it starts with the center of you, the heart, and works its way out into the rest of your personality, your thinking, your behavior. Secondly, he says, we must come with full assurance that faith brings. So the confidence that we have, Chris spoke about, are you confident? You know, are you confident to say the alphabet? Yeah. Are you confident to say it backwards? No. What confidence do we have coming to God? Not your own efforts. Not remotely your own efforts. You don't come in to church or to any kind of uh, encounter saying, have I been good enough? You, you say, has Jesus been good enough for me? Faith comes when we fix our eyes on the object of faith, Jesus Christ. This whole letter has been what he has done, who he is. And the result of that. So when we think that through and we hold firmly onto that, then we get confidence. You see? The confidence is not me looking inside and thinking, how am I doing? The confidence is me looking outside at Jesus and saying, what has he done? And I live in the light of that. A true, sincere heart. Full assurance of faith. And now he applies those things a little bit deeper in verse 22. We must have our hearts sprinkled from a guilty conscience. How does that happen? This is the great effect of the sacrifice of Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 14 said, The blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished, cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve, worship the living God. So when you sin, Christian, what do you do? 
I mean, really, what do you do when you, when you sin? Do you beat yourself up? Kind of psychologically whipping yourself. Bad Christian. Do you try and defend yourself and make all sorts of excuses for why I've done it? Do you just sit and hate yourself? I wish. You, you, you're full of loathing, self-loathing and hatred, maybe even self-harm. You know, none of those responses is actually a response that is looking to the blood of Jesus Christ. A friend of mine who was a pastor put it this way. When you sin, look in the corner of the room and imagine that you see a cross there. Take your sin to that cross, kneel before it and lay it down and say, Lord, I thank you that your blood has washed away my sins. And then stand up and sin no more. Drop it there and leave it. Don't go back to it. Hearts sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience. And then I'm going to close with this. Verses 23 to 25 show us that this worship that we're called to is both personal and public. Personally, he says, hold on to your hope. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. As we are... um, Followers of Jesus, Christians, we're learning the faith. We come week by week. We, we, we do studies. We re- read the Bible together. Uh, we can read good books. We're growing in the faith and the knowledge. And he says, hold on to it. Don't let your distractions or your doubts rob you of your confidence. But the next words underline just how much we need each other. Remember how we started with that picture of the marathon, the runners. They could only complete it with the encouragement of each other and the spectators. It's part of human nature. Football teams are usually much better when they play at home than they are when they play away. I just never understood that. The same group of players playing the same game with the same rules and getting the same extravagant salaries are much better when they play in their home ground than when they play away. Why is it? Because of the spectators, because of the encouragement. It's part of our nature. And verse 24 says this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here's the thing. Do you think you can go it alone? I'm going to look up there at the camera. Friends who are watching at home, maybe there's a good reason for that. But let me ask you, if you could have been here today, but you're not, is it because you think you can go it alone? Because we need you. And you need us. I know some are watching because of health reasons. I'm not talking to you. Some wish they were here. But maybe others who are watching need to plug into a church physically and be present. Some people don't realize what being being a Christian is corporate, not individual. You are saved into the body of Christ. You're saved into being part of God's people, not just God's person. Some people maybe are busy or a little bit lazy, would rather avoid the effort of public gathering. COVID gave us all the chance to, to do church in our pajamas. Some people, if they're honest, don't really like the other Christians in the area. They're just not my cup of tea. That's not me, by the way, I just want to say that. 
But for these original readers, there was another thing, which was the threat of persecution. It, it, they could actually get into trouble if they were caught uh, going to church. Much easier to escape notice if you avoid meeting publicly with other worshippers. Much safer just not to turn up. In our previous church in Manchester, we had a good number of people who were internationals who came to the church, some believers, some uh, curious, and for them, confessing Jesus Christ in public when they got back home meant real risk, persecution. They might lose their job. One person lost her family. It was like that for these guys. And so in, in light of that, he says, there's no place for that. There's no place for solo runners. Every Christian needs the encouragement of every other Christian. Everyone who comes through the door of a place of public worship, whether it's a great cathedral or a community building with a sports hall or a house church, you are a real encouragement. I want to look at everyone in the eyes. You are a real encouragement to us, to all of us, just by being here. Just by being here. You know that? Just being here is part of the way that you can stir us up to work hard at the central actions of Christian living, love and good deeds. The word he uses is like provoke. It's like stirring each other up. Come on, let's do it. Let's grow in love. Let's do good things for Jesus. Just being here. And we need this encouragement all the more because we get weary. And verse 25 says, we're looking forward to when the day approaches. Jesus has completed his work. Are you coming to worship? God has done everything we need. Are we making the most of it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful word. And Lord, we just praise you for the almost inexpressibly beautiful things that it speaks of, of your grace to us, your acceptance of us, and your love for us, which is now so committed that you've adopted us and promised us a future with you. Help us to draw near. Amen.